0: The director of a company needs to stay close to the coalface, yet remain detached enough to effectively direct the business. This, according to Brian Lupton-Smith, has been the key to the success of Whiten Chemicals over the past quarter of a century. Whiten is a latex compounding organisation servicing the local textile and flooring industry. Born in the Cape by in Natal, Brian's character as a young man was shaped through experiences on the unicorn shipping fleet and during the border war. Before being mentored in the carpet industry by Stefan Koller of Balgotex, Brian places a high premium on mentoring and he believes Whiten is all about its people. As he says, if they can grow, they will grow the business. Ryan, thank you so much for your time. Welcome to the show and, and tell us a bit more about yourself. Where are you? Where did you grow up? Where did that whole journey start to where you're sitting now as a as a successful entrepreneur?
1: No, thanks, Jacques. It's great. I was born in the Somerset West. My uh, father came out from, although South African, he married my, my mom over in the UK. And he came out with AECI into Somerset West when they set up the South Africa was being promoted in the early '60s as the the milk and honey, the place to be. So he came out. He was quite senior up in AECI, set up in Somerset West. We then left. I was born in '68. We we left uh, Somerset West up into Natal, where pretty much I spent most of my life. Other than five years ago, I've I've moved back. We semigrated, as people might say, to the Western Cape again. Um, but yeah, so, so my life has really been in, in Natal. I've loved Natal's uh, KZN and pretty much followed the route in textiles through my father. He always had textiles in the garage and yarn and creels and things like that. Um, but I, I was one of six uh, children. So yeah, we, we had a, a tough upbringing from two brothers, older brothers, always uh, Giving me a few gears and uh, a few drillings, and and sisters on the other side. But um, yeah, we were really enjoyed. It got us a good sports family. We uh, enjoyed a lot of sports. Um, My main sport was tennis. I think, from a personal point, uh, being playing singles in tennis, it it really showed you 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 really are accountable to yourself Um, and being competitive. You had no one else to sort of
0: blame. Um, although, Only McEnroe okay. did that back in the day. Yeah, I think you know, he yeah. recently admitted it, right?
1: <laughs> I, I, I didn't throw the records though, or, or shout and scream at the at the uh, umpire. I think that was more my, my older brother at that stage. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, so so we were very very competitive. There was an opportunity to really grow, but I think uh, sort of the sixteen year old, my father always sort of pushed us into a an older age group to you always believed you always going to play somebody better than yourself. Otherwise you're going backwards. So there was always that, I think I was sort of 14 playing into sort of under 16 age group. And I think at that stage for us, if I pushed myself through and had possibly the right um, mentorship at that point, I could have made it, made it through. But I think you were playing suddenly as a physical side, you were suddenly playing much bigger guys. And so I then, uh, I think probably to my own my own fault in the sense got more into the cricket and more into the social and the soccer games and obviously in Durban surfing and uh, and uh, girls and that came on the scene. So my focus sort of lost on the on the real competitive <laughs> edge on, on the tennis. But but it was great and uh, it 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 allowed me to be part of teams, um you know, support other players, motivate other players as well as being being motivated and being part of a team. But on other aspects of my natural strength and is, is proving to myself, like I say, playing uh, singles tennis or uh, individual sport, exactly what I can do. And, and it's always been a, a, a thing for me, and maybe i jump ahead a little bit, with Anton van der Post was a guy that was quite an inspiration to me going through. He's one of the leadership mentors in the country some, some time back, where a comment and, and a, a sort of phrase I've always used is, if it is to be, it's up to me. And I've always looked at myself in the mirror when I'm waking up in the morning and shaving and so on. It's it's that comment was was very, very strong in my growth phase and when I started my career um and really looked to that. But but even in my sports and anything I've done, I you know, we can always go around blame everybody else, but at the end of the day, it's it's up to you. If you really want to make it, it's up to you. So so that's really where it started.
0: So through my school, no, look, it- I, may I sorry to interrupt you, Brian. I just want to quickly stand still there. So what what do you do? And again, I'm I'm scared I forget to ask the question later on. So you know, what do you do today as far as keeping the you know that uh, axe sharpened? I mean, obviously you you know personal development that side of things. Is there any particular you know uh, authors, uh, YouTube? I mean, as we've got. Incredible uh, teachers out there these days. What? What? How do you keep the axe sharpened?
1: Yeah, I think uh, I think faith is a big a big part of it. My wife and I are really work together. At our quiet time every morning, we're passionate about just taking the time and and allowing the day to start on the right foot on a faith side of it. I've also used guys like John Maxwell, for instance, who's a sort of a Christian leadership guy reading some of his books, uh, leadership books, and really just, I, I just feel, you know, winners stay with winners. If you're in the right group of people who are talking positive, you've got focus going forward, um, you can only learn by that and you can work off of each other's uh, values. I think, you know, so often you can sit together and, and people end up building mountains and hills and whining sessions, you just end up becoming negative. So I think that's a big part of me. I think that's a big strength of me. I'll always look at a, a positive situation out of a negative. Always look for, a, you know, a, a, a real value where I can get some positiveness out of a out of a problem. I think that's that's been to me, and it have been. I mean, as you've said, we've we've gone through COVID, we've gone through a number of um, issues. That you know, the country's growth at this point in time is not great. But there's positives in it. There's ways of finding ways, and I think that's my entrepreneurial spirit is looking into areas where I can add value. And I think just to finalise on your question, there's I think it's also to take time to to look at yourself afterwards as well and reassess yourself. I think those things are more important as opposed to it. Um, your your general business day and Mavericks and your stories, keeping in touch with you know, what's happening around the world and stuff, for sure, that's one thing. But for me, it's more being in person and having discussions with successful and, you know, people moving and, and building and, and going somewhere in life with a vision, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Oh, Again, yeah, it's interesting. We, we actually had, as four guys, we had this chat on Friday about that golden rule of you, you are the average of five people closest to you, or well, let's say the five people in your, your inner circle. And I think they've gone as far as saying even your income reflects that. So it's, it's, it's very powerful, but how do you go about making sure? And I mean, and I asked the question because I sometimes find that I think I'm I'm surrounded by solid people, but sometimes it's coming back to your point that I want a tougher player. I want a tougher opponent slash someone that, you know, 10 times or 10 X my, my size company, for example, who I can bribe with. But, I mean, that becomes complicated. So how do you – I mean, is that something you orchestrate or is it just a natural progression that, you know, that like-minded people will find one another?
1: Yeah, I think it's it's being out there. I think it's conversations. I think I fortunately have the benefit in the sense that I can meet people and get on well with people and open up and ask, and I'm not scared to ask questions. You know, I think a lot of people – are scared to look stupid, I suppose. Um, but yeah, it's just being friendly, open, being interested in other people. I think people, once they sort of um, feel more relaxed, actually like talking about themselves. So if you can get get the person to open up, yeah. you can learn so much from the people. And if they see that you have a genuine interest in them, I think that's where you start building a good bond, a good relationship. And you can then help each other and support each other, and I think that's where trust then materializes out of um, out of it. So yeah, I think fortunately also, you know, we've in in our business we've diversified and we in a wide range of market areas. Um, so I'm dealing with owners of businesses right down to the employees on the floor at ground level, and I can socialize from the bottom, from a, the technical expertise and values with them, where I, I think they appreciate that I can take that time as I, you know, they see me as this big business owner, but I'm actually taking time at that level to, you know, help them. And, and really, you know, like often I say to my own people in my own factories and, and that as well, is that they working in that plant every day. They should actually know more than me. Mm. So I'm expecting them to know more than me the next time. And, you know, as I said, that phrase I used earlier, if it is to be, it's up to me. We've put that in, in my factory with one or two of the guys. And, and I'll specifically come back to them, obviously living in Cape Town, I, I get back to Natal sort of a week, a month at least, other than traveling between Joburg and East London and so on. I will specifically make a note and go back to that person the first day I arrived from that last discussion when I left and, and question him, where's he at now In from that previous discussion and challenge him. And they know that when Brian's coming back, they are gonna be on their toes because they know that- <laughs> They're gonna be held accountable. <laughs> you know, I'm gonna be holding them accountable too. Uh, so, I love it. so to me, that's as much as I'm really driving, I'm giving the people as best motivation and resources to improve their own lives and give them self-confidence and belief They also know that I'm holding them to account for their own good. If they can grow, they will grow the business because they're building a team. I truly believe the success in in my business has been the people. And we've got my top management who are between 16 years to 27 years that have been with me. And I've been truly blessed with, with that management team. That has really allowed me to diversify my businesses from a small little company when I joined, which which was pretty much in a a liquidated position, to really looking after or diversifying the business into five key structured businesses now with independent management teams, um, really taking hold of their own um, management books and accounting and and driving the vision of each, each company. Um, and that really came from the people who the business um, basically trained up. They were put on to, and they, they wanted to, uh, the company financed it and supported them with it, with going into become tertiary education and things like that, which are now paying dividends for themselves and, and the fruit of the business, um, the growth of the business, allowing it to diversify. And I think yeah, I've been, as I say, extremely blessed with that. Um, employing somebody from outside to come and take a role, I don't believe would be as successful as it's been here. They know my dreams, they, they're living it through seeing me living it and being passionate in, in what I do. Um, and I think that's it. I, you know, getting back to where I came from, obviously in Natal. I wanted to get into marine engineering. My father and parents couldn't put me through tertiary, so it was a way of, uh, I joined uh, unicorn shipping lines.
0: Sport and business have plenty in common in terms of motivation, values, and vision. Sport exposes one to a variety of experiences and strengthens attributes such as resilience, commitment, tenacity, and resolve. The exact same qualities are required to succeed in business. Sport is also a great motivator, with individuals constantly aiming for excellence, pushing the limits and addressing failures. I wanted to know from Brian whether his background in competitive tennis as a youngster had any bearing on him initially pursuing marine engineering and eventually ending up in business.
1: I always like um, fixing cars or building things as well in the off time um, amongst running around and training and playing tennis and so on. But I think, as I say, around about the 15, 16-year-old, I think the pressure and the competition and the drive to to perform and and get through was sort of, I would probably say, got, got burnt out a bit. Um, I think it, there was quite a lot of guys, you know, um, a few of the guys, Ferreras and guys like that in Southern Transvaal, they were at like 15 or so got burnt out. They were so pushed by coaches and parents and things like that. They are interested, that, you know, there was a bit more to life than than training three hours a day on a tennis court, chasing the ball around, um, you know, things. So, yeah. Definitely, I think what it taught me there and, and what hopefully with, with my kids and we have a really open relationship, my, my wife and I, with the kids, is to put pressure on them but still allow them to make their calls. Realize by making that calls what the potential consequences could be, what I potentially missed out on, but on the other hand, that's luck, and how we've made the best, and how we've driven in the direction that we've gone now. So it's 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 allowing the kids to see a picture out there that they could potentially achieve, and what I believe that they could achieve. But at the end of the day, it's up to them. They've got to make the final call. And I think that's what I've tried to to do from my own experience. In the sense, I think if I had been given a bit of maybe a clearer picture of the potential out there and how I could get there mm-hmm. um, when I was at Fifteen and and running around the the sports fields and, and surfing and so on, I possibly would have burst through that that uh, level. Um, was
0: a lack of a of a roadmap, so to speak?
1: Yeah, I think so.
0: Yeah, it, it
1: was driven. Um, but yeah, you know, at the end of the day, I also believe that we all have our own journeys, and 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 God has put that journey for us. And um, yeah, you know, there's certain times when doors close. And that's that's us doing, and uh, I think that sometimes, often the case as human beings, we're trying to to open doors that we think is uh, you know good for us, but there's a bigger purpose and a bigger picture out there, which uh, sure. which is where 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 my faith has really matured more um, of late than than those years. That's for sure. Yeah. And um, yeah, so as I say, mechanical was a way, but I think it was also just one of these the things that this door opened. I was 17 when I matriculated, saw an opportunity, people were, you know, we were close to the Durban Harbor, there was the links between my parents and some networking that, you know, you could go to see, you could earn a bit of an income, I could get out of the house sort of thing. and. My, all the brothers and sisters and, and go and see the world type of scenario. And that was quite exciting for me. Yeah. So so I was at sea for two years on and off doing studying at the Technicon six months on, six months off. And yeah, I, you know, I think getting back to the attitude aspect, I did the first run and I thought I'd. we went from Durban down to Belfast Bay. And if I knew how to get home on land from Belfast Bay, I, I think I would have would Have left the ship because I was uh, <laughs> sick as a, as a dog on the ship for, for about three days through the trans guy. But you know, it was one of those things, and I think that is, if I can say it for myself, I'm uh, you know, I, I stick to it, I'm not don't want really to let the team down. You know, I, I was there, I used to work the 12 to 4 shift, 12 midnight to 4
0: o'clock. And how, how long was, is that trip, by the way? Uh, it's it's
1: it works roughly, it's about four days. Okay, so it's not okay. it's not around the corner. No, no, yeah. So you had it, never been been on a ship like that before. Um, and what they do is, you know, being a roofie, and that they send you down to the bottom in the engineering where it can be up to forty degrees, and then they straight off let they send you up to the top deck to go and do an air conditioning reading in the funnels, and that's sort of at you know outside temperature in in, in the off, uh, late afternoon, which can be at five degrees or oh my ten degrees. So. So they they and that that just spurs on this. I mean seasickness of movement and, and, and hot and cold and
0: so on. So that's just a well That's, that's their of Just saying welcome to the team. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah.
1: But I think they did get a bit worried because I think it was for almost a solid two and a half days. I was just sick as an absolute dog, but I still fought it and went down to the you know to the to the um, engine room and so on. And eventually the guys just said, like, you know just." Just don't move. Just stay there because we're you, actually a bit worried that you, you, <laughs> sure. you you're coping too well. But that's it. You know, it, it wasn't. Um, I think I fight. I have the ability to fight through it and not give up. I think that, if I can say, has been a possibly a credit. And as I say, I always look through the try and find the positive out of difficult situations in where I've come. And that's where the door opened. I was on the next trip. I was moved onto the flagship of uh, which was the Amphialosi uh, ship, on the Unicorn out of all the other cadets. And I had a a Siemens passport, which they gave me, which allowed me to travel pretty much the world, and especially during isolation and apartheid in South Africa, we were part of the Panama flag. So the Amphalosi, the the unicorn ship, the the flagship, was traveling between Durban, Cape Town, up into Zaire, up the Metadi, up the uh, Congo River into Matadi which was a fantastic trip uh, really wow. was interesting to see that um yeah not that I'm proud of it but you know it, it was actually over easter we got on shore i happened to have a, a camera and i was taking because they have got some beautiful catholic churches and some old wind the old belgium yeah um we owned it the next minute, I suddenly had a, a, a gun at my head, basically, uh, what am I doing, you know, sort of taking pictures and all these type of things. Fortunately, there was a other guy from the, you know, from the Stevedol's guys who, who was able to communicate with the guys and say, yeah, uh, we're just a tourist. We, yeah, yeah, yeah. We so, sure. you know, so being really green behind the ears, out of school, thinking the world is just so cool. Yeah. Suddenly, I had a few... Uh, a few shocks, uh, uh, you know, to me that, uh, you know, different countries treat different people. You, you're you foreigner type of thing. And uh, you need to start uh, knowing, you know, getting the into the real world. Um, to
0: start yeah. of it. But, yeah, the the tourism ministry was non-existent at, at that stage. <laughs> in ah, absolutely <laughs> not. Yeah.
1: And, yeah, I mean, it was just, there were just so many eye-openers there. I mean, on the wharf there in, in Matari, it's, you know, you had these Porsches and these Mercedes, just one on top of the other. And ships had arrived, obviously. There, they, they didn't, couldn't take them. I couldn't understand how such wealth was just being dumped off the of the cards. And and these type of things sort of really opened my my mind. With um, you know, we were carrying salted fish and bitumen uh, drums up, and we actually, as as the engineer side, when we were offloading on the ships, had to uh, actually stand guard because you would hire the the guys to the stevedores to come and load up the, the boxes. But what they would do in the in the holds, they would split because they're so hungry, they would tear a box and try and eat a fish. Now for every box that was broken, it's worthless. And it's cool. so we would have have there to stand guard and box and all this type of thing. And in Matari being the river, you've got the actual um the platform higher than the ship. You would have the, the other guys, all the locals at the top with stones and that if they saw you trying to trying to stop a guy from breaking a, a box open, they would like try and pelt you with stones oh from goodness. from
0: the top. And so if you, you do, and if you don't type thing.
1: Yeah. But you know, it, it just it just showed me just such differences in you know, countries to people, to to how people do different things and weighing and, and, and so on. So um, you know that that taught me. And, and real poor people, they out of desperate need to to have something, food, to you know, even there we would employ a security guard on the ship, and you know those guys felt absolutely nothing to to shoot a, a guy trying to get onto the ship, and that would just float down the river. Oh my goodness! To coming off that ship and his mates with him, you know that type of thing. It it was like. It's, it's it's just so from one angle one side really? to the other it was wherever they were getting money from they were on that person's side for for the moment so so being at seventeen, eighteen, and seeing these type of things definitely got me quite a quite an eye-opener of what the world was. what
0: was that i mean the fine eye-opener i mean moments at that time reflecting on it were, were you sad were you disappointed i mean what what was going through your mind were you Scared. I mean it's uh Yeah.
1: You know, I think coming from sort of our privileged sort of background, you know, in the apartheid and stuff, it was easy. We could walk around, there was no security, all these type of things. We we felt safe and stuff to suddenly being put into a into something like this where it was everybody for themselves. Mm. They were desperate, they're you know, from such poverty to such extremes. Um, and such, being so desperate, they would fight for anything. Mm. Um, that hunger, I think that that was something which, yeah, I mean, I was definitely uh, pretty, pretty shocked and, and, yeah, even to a point of scared, especially when when uh, you have a, a gun or something raised at you. Yeah, yeah. You, yeah. And and not being in your comfort zone, you were in a different country, and so that definitely uh, woke me up a bit, and and I think I, I definitely grew and matured in in that first year. Um, And yes, going up to Ceylon, Sri Lanka in those days, um, that was amazing too. And the funny story there was um, Alvin kali and the Rebel cricket side from there was actually touring the Sri Lankans here with Jimmy Cook and and the boys. And um, I happened to be up there when they had just been expelled from the Sri Lankan side. And there you could get the old TDK tapes and the electronics in Sri Lanka, it was duty free. And if you got off the ship and went into town on this taxi or vehicle, you would get a free trip back if you had spent so many dollars and whatnot on on electrical equipment. So there I was off going my my immature young age. I went and bought a radio and TDK, Those all those tapes and a big thing. And I got to the customs to come through and suddenly the taxi guys wanted money for it. And I said, yeah, but we had this agreement that if I bought so much, it was a free trip back It'd and forth. Back, and yeah. there became a whole big sort of um, argument and so on. And the police guys, the custom guys were there. And the next minute I heard, you know, when they said uh, uh, South African ship um, and something, said, yeah, you South African, it's, it's our cricket people that you've, Elvin, Kalitron, and that you've, you've destroyed our cricket site. And you suddenly think, and this is a, a customs police official something <laughs> suddenly think oh hold on a minute I'm, I'm really going on the wrong side of the well, it's of getting very personal
0: <laughs> now <laughs>
1: so you you know and I think that's that that really taught me how to dance and and find a, a quick solution quickly to to get out of a, a difficult uh, position and, sure. and so on so yeah I think all these type of things I've I think I definitely learned a lot on the way from a personal perspective and how to be myself and grow up and and take take the knocks and find the positive and and make it happen. You know? it's so a, it's really, a, it's yeah, it's it's so really
0: it's extremely exciting. Awesome. I I can't imagine you know a more exciting start to you know to your adult journey than you know a young man on a boat, right? It's. Uh, seeing yeah. other countries and, and all the I, I cannot honestly can't think of a more exciting way to to kick things. But like you say, there's uh, eye openers and uh, did, did you earn good money back then?
1: No. My first salary I think was two hundred and twelve <laughs> Rand, but uh, and, and then uh, you had
0: food for free, right? And and and, and lunch.
1: you, know what that and you <laughs> the, the best position was to be the best mate of the chef. Because he oh. would always keep you uh, a good, and especially like, kind. I actually enjoyed working the the midnight shift, the twelve to four, because the chefs were always preparing for the next day anyway. And he would always keep me a, a good portion of a roast or something one side to to
0: get.
1: So yeah, so those 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 were definitely good. Um, they were they were hard but good. I mean, I remember coming back from that uh, Sri Lankan trip, coming through Seychelles um, that you have to have a signing off case of beer when you get to Durban. So you get to ETA and you've also got to pay all your fines. If you drop a spanner in the engine room and you must know it's three stories high, so you can definitely give someone a bruise on the head if it it lands on them or in the bulges. You... you got to pay those funds that 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 my salary didn't cover my my, my <laughs> all
0: your mistakes
1: <laughs> well yeah so so i wasn't allowed off off the ship until i made a plan to, to pay my bottle so, so yeah it, it might have been a case of it was pocket money or also because you were you were looked after with food and, and living and so. But actually, yeah, um, it it wasn't much, uh, that, that's for sure. <laughs> but it it was it was more the experience and the the opportunity. And I think my personal growth uh, differently. If if I looked at guys my age who left school went to the army and I came came back, I could see differently. I had had seen a, a more a, a world picture, yeah. a, a world view of uh, of a bigger thing as opposed to. Um, you know where they were getting very much more a, a sort of a brainwashed picture of of where they were, um, and that sort of led me. Yeah, so so what ended up happening through the studies and a lot of us in my also my career was I was planning to, I'd never planned to to stay at sea. Um, I'd also realized there it was one of these things of, as I was leaving the port of Durban, quite excited that we can you know do it. It's like. But this will probably be my last trip because mm-hmm. you know I, I never was, I never had my my sea legs totally. I was always sort of working. Also for me, I, I like a good six-hour sleep. Not mm-hmm. uh, there, it was always broken sleep and stuff. So you but be that as it may, and, but always coming back and as you are entering South Africa, it was like, sure, I could maybe do another trip. You know, so you always it had this mind game. Of, of playing, so it was and I think that was teaching myself to be real what is 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 this real or is this sort of am I trying to show myself although' I'm, it's not perfect, I can make it work you know I think that sort of matured myself into being the being a real realistic in the situation so when we got into the studying and the the career I knew that I was going to move on to mechanical engineering. And you just needed to do an extra subject in your third course, uh, third year, which would, would get you on, on shore. And at that stage, basically what happened, a lot of people were ended up doing that. Containerization was starting. I was fortunate in this. I'm going back here in 86, 87 was when I was at sea. It was general cargo. So being in Mauritius or in the Seychelles or, you know, some of these other ports and we were carrying grain it would take you a week to offload. So for us engineering guys, we would go and we had a free accommodation. So we just catch a taxi and go the other side of the island of my hair or whatever and go to all the fancy hotels and do our thing. And, um, it was great. It was a great sort of free trip and holiday and being young and, and so on. But, um, quickly realized that, you know, containers now it's it's sort of eight hours in port and you're gone. So and chatting and to, to my seniors, their second engineers, chief engineers, I don't think I've had seen. I don't think I've ever seen a chief engineer, a sober chief engineer. So um, that used to be mainly the second engineers I was chatting with, and all of them had, for every port I'd been to, they'd been there five, six, seven times already. So they weren't even going offshore. So to me, that there was no. I didn't see the excitement in wanting to stay at sea and 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 so on as much. So unfortunately, fortunately, whichever way we take it, there. My marine engineering finished when we were studying. We were forced to sign an agreement that we would stay on a, a, doing a 10-year thing with Unicorn, and I wasn't prepared to stay at sea for, for that period of time. So that's when Magnus Milan called us up very quickly. As soon as we didn't sign that, within a week I got my, my call-ups, and um, yeah, I was uh, sent, sent to the military. Um, it was a day, uh, I think it was Colonel Breitenbach as so one in the tall. We went to see him and said, Well, I've been with the Navy. Can I go down to, to the Navy in Simonstown in Cape Town? And he said, No, the famous forclaring for word or whatever, when I get to to the base wherever I've been caught up to, I can put a Faklaring in and then ask to come down to, to the Navy. But that that never happened. In fact, yeah. So Did you put so, it in though? No, that's, that's a, a little bit of a story. I was actually on the, on the train and uh, Francois Sauer, a, a good friend of mine, he was a good tennis player in the Free State. I actually met him on the train. I was actually going to the military police and he was off to the sports academy in Pretoria. So I decided, well, that sounded far better um, than the military police. So I ended yeah. up actually uh, climbing off the train in Pretoria. i had torn up my call-up papers and basically being the Englishman made out, I just couldn't understand Afrikaans. <laughs> so it was uh, Ekwistani, and I was well.
0: following,
1: following the other Englishman in the France. So yeah, so although, and it was quite funny because I was on the, we actually camped on the military parade grounds in the military police in Pretoria. <laughs> <laughs> um, for about a
0: week. And they, they, they didn't came. know you, you're, not, you're supposed to be there, but not not, yeah. not on the field. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so, yeah, so we were there at the sports gymnasium for about three weeks, I think it ended up, when they eventually had enough of us Englishmen and sent us to Bloemfontein at, at one side. So, okay. so that's where I started my army, and I actually really enjoyed the army. I thought it was great. It was amazing to see people who had never worn boots before. They, their father's farm, they could ride for three Days without uh, you know counting his father's herds or cattle up in the Mpopo era, to even, not even knowing a light switch son- uh scenario. But you know that guy would be able to teach you, especially when you were up on the border, how to dissect a, a, a goat or t- test test the kidneys for all the livers uh, for worms and things like that. It was that. It was really amazing, and that sort of taught me from you know everybody has a value, and it's just how we can take the time to appreciate each other and, and learn from each other. And that really got us through, you know, I was 14 months up in, in, in the border there, which I lived up in Oshavelo, up more the Namibia side of the Southwest African side. And um yeah, although there were some some tough moments, it was really, really great to see. I was obviously older than the the general sort of new intakes, you know, you had, I think in those days you could leave school at 16. There was definitely a good few brainwashed guys coming in, wanting to just do their thing and yeah. stand for what they thought was right. And I was coming all with a, a bit more of a worldly view. I think I was 20 at that age where I was questioning because I had a question, well, what are we actually doing this for? Yeah. Why are we doing it? And sort of I felt I was, more being pressurized into something otherwise i'd you know you know in part of that marine engineering was it was a five-year course that i could be doing not the military but you do your your national service five years in the marines versus you know doing two years in, in the army at that stage but my, that was it i was the last to do two years we came out in 89 so we our roofs were basically the same as us they did one year so that was uh Although they thought they were Oman, they, uh, we had to quickly put them into shape. <laughs> but it was great. We made the best out of it. Our, I became the, the post-taphy and the barman up in the, in the border in a place called Tumeb, which was when we weren't in any contacts or anything. And at that stage, you know, there was the 16th parallel agreement where the, the South Korea was starting to, to have to move, move down from that whole agreement after we had got taken out of it in that ambush last time I think the South probably realized that the Cuban tanks and that or and the American side was starting to get a bit more powerful than and, than the South African where we were. So so that was a really interesting time. And um yeah, so I I got into a good position of being uh sort of looking after all the uh the Baudan and in the colonels uh, and permanent force ranks there. And that was great with Colonel Roots and Liebenberg and some of the real top guys being there and, and sort of seeing, seeing what they're about. And then, um, yeah, so that's also the army. And fortunately, through getting back into my family's side, who were my father from textiles, my oldest brother got into a company, South African Carpet Mills, which was through pretty much through the networking of my father's side in Hammersdale. And through that, when Belgatex Carpet started in 1989, Stefan Koller employed my brother and sent him and Patrick Delpierre over to America to learn extrusion of yarn um, and set up a company in the Tilt Industries, which is the yarn manufacturer of Belgatex uh, at the time. And the timing was perfect because Roy had just come back, my brother had come back from that, started up in Maritzburg with Stefan and Anne, and um, I was just finishing the army. So Stefan was looking for other people. So yeah, I came, came and joined Belgatex in, in 1990. And I think that you know, was probably, and I still think today, and I've always tried to look at people I could look up to and learn from and mentor. And I think it was just, just an add-on to who I was with, with Stefan. You know, Stefan was a... Uh, what do you call it uh, in Belgium, uh, a really top chef. side so didn't know anything really about carpets, but, you know, he just showed me through tenacity, through hard work, commitment and passion really was really amazing for me to be in a, in a position that he gave me and trust that he gave me and res- responsibility to join. So I was looking after the backing plants, which is, which is a, the process that finishes the carpet off, it puts the glue on the back of the carpet and, and, and finishes the carpet to the customer. Okay. And obviously, if you know, often what you find in mills and factories and that everybody in their different divisions can pass on problems to the next department, I think. <laughs> but obviously, my department there, I couldn't send it to the customer. So I always had to know more than everyone else where these problems arose from. And then I had to then hold all the other divisions accountable for stop sending me their rubbish and and for me to sort out I can't uh, think. So that at quite a young age, it taught me to to believe in myself, stand on it. And the only way, as my father used to say, if you don't know something, go out and teach it. Um, that quickly, you know, in some of these senior meetings and stuff, I had to know what I was talking about. And that really in the middle of the night, you know, get up, go and learn. And then and, and I'll go to the factory and I'll go into other departments. I always found um, between midnight and two o'clock in the morning where people want to sleep or just can't stay awake. Um I would go and talk to them and learn from the other departments is because they love to talk because they could stay awake there and have somebody to talk to. Oh, yeah. And that's how I learned. And one thing, learning the different divisions and the different departments and what did, but also where these guys were ducking and cutting corners or passing to the next step. So when it came to my department, I knew exactly where – you know, where these guys had cut corners and stuff yeah. so that their senior management in the media could be saying, well, hold on a minute. You actually created this problem because of this machine. This happened in A, B, and C. And suddenly the guys were were on the back foot. Yeah. Um, and I think that was really from, you know, just showing, and, and the real respect that I've had with with Stefan was, you know, just have the balls to admit that you've cocked it up mm. pretty much. And 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 all he wanted to know was, what caused the problem? How can we fix it, and how do we make sure we don't do it again? Yeah. and I think some of those little lessons, um, even if it was you know going on a Sunday night and having a great Brian and a party and whatnot, there's no excuse for being being uh, at work, even if you're with your bosses and stuff, if you're not at work at half or seven in the morning, then don't go out then you know and that was one thing with Stefan. you could play hard but you work hard, and you've got to have a clear line in the sand of, of your commitments and responsibilities on that. So I must say, he he was fantastic. Um, you know, he gave me a real career in, in my life, one of mentoring his personality of of passion and commitment into something and giving 200% into, in, in, into what he was given um, by his uh, father-in-law and, and mother-in-law. But he didn't sit back and have it as a freebie. he really made that company um and the group the whole cap group or uh, of william so and and one thing with him and and I've tried to do is communication and networking. you know he used to say that I had to at least be in touch with one person a month, at least one person a month around the world, talking about my department and how i could improve my department and wow. and it was that you know and especially coming from in the early 90s in the apartheid where everybody hated us he allowed us to to enforce us and put pressure on us to ensure that we were, were networking with the group around the world to gain as much value and never once did he ever stop us from traveling anywhere to those companies to learn more and, and stuff so sure you really did have the, the, the passion and commitment and and saw the value for, for ourselves. Being young, knowing nothing. You know, you always used to say to me, you'd rather, like I've sort of said earlier, is having attitude than aptitude. If he saw that you had the attitude, he would really give you everything and every opportunity to make it happen. Yes. But on the other hand, if you get a bit complacent or relaxed, he would take you out very quickly. And, and that was, I saw a number of people that came through, through Belvetext that didn't last long is because they sort of got a bit complacent on, on things. So that was great. It was a young, dynamic business in those days. It was growing rapidly. As yes, Of course, um, it was
0: entrepreneurial, right? I mean, it's not, yeah. not established corporate or anything.
1: No, and it was was great. And I really sort of looked to Stefan because I think his personality was quite similar to mine. It was just drive it and how, we just keep pushing and growing. And the harder you work, the the, 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 the benefits and, and, and so on. So that was was exciting. And it was a good a good opportunity for me to grow in my own personality and my own person in, in that side. And then we got, obviously, with the growth of Beltex and sort of more the Bel- Belgium structure, which was very flat, versus, you know, Romatex and Van Dyke, the, the opposition sort of guys, which was very too many directors, too heavy management and stuff. That I think taught me when I got involved in Whitehorn Chemicals, which is my company now, and looking at to ensure that the management structure is in such a way that you are still close enough to the coal face, but still ensuring that you know when to be an owner of a business, when to direct a business, and when to be an employee of the business. Mm. I think that has also been very key in our success in in our small business that we are. I think in the beginning, if you get yourself too sucked into the coal face, you lose the bigger picture and what your your end goals are and how you're gonna, gonna get there. Yeah. So I think for that era, I left Belitex in 96. So that was around six years that I'd been there. It was really a great sort of really a start to my career. It really gave me a direction. It showed me what, you know, put the the effort in the rewards are due by the amount of effort you put into something. And the, you know, f- for someone like Stefan, seeing a value that I had and giving me the opportunity, I think was great. And the self-belief and the confidence to then take the next step to get involved, which On Chemicals was a small company which was supplying Bulgatex at the time. So I f- saw the opportunity to, to to get into this company, which had the opportunity to see other market areas. Mm. And I also, I also found myself in Belgatex the, as I've grown, I got to a point is where, and I think some people like to be in four walls or in a factory, getting a salary every month. I think I was getting to myself getting frustrated that I wanted to grow more and I couldn't, and I was sort of bumping my head on the uh, ceiling. And that's what I'll say, with your European style or Baltics, quite a flat structure, I couldn't get into or didn't see being in a position to be able to get into a higher level of, of Baltics at that time, which was fun. So so that was the opportunity for me to take on a smaller company here and potentially get into the sales side of the business where I can get out into the market, understand a much more diverse market other than just carpets that really was a door that you know i hadn't really planned it just really opened up it definitely taught me school fees because the business when i got in knew nothing about accounts nothing or accounting uh, thing i very quickly realized that the business wasn't in a great state uh, at all i managed to network with some some of our suppliers overseas when i was at Belgatex they were on board, so the relationship I had with them, they they suddenly realized that, yeah, maybe they had been sold a bit of a dummy when they got involved in Winton. I then obviously was with them now in Winton, I realized that we needed to make some some changes and, and so on. And that's what happened. So the previous owner eventually left, and yeah, I, I took over here in South Africa and really decided to diversify the business. If, if we looked at the southern market, The carpet market at that stage you know it was about 12 carpet manufacturers eventually it got down to really three four manufacturers from 20 odd million square meters of tufted carpet i think today it's probably sitting around about five million square meters of tufted a lot of it's hard flooring and and so on so i realized you know this company if we were ready to build it it was to to diversify learning more about chemistry it was you know, everything's made out of chemistry or chemicals, so let's really get into textiles. And and the more I explored into that, the the more value came from my father's side and the value that he had and the respect, I think, that the market had. He um, he brought in Roan Pralink. It's a yarn coming in, plus for the fiberglass into, into your car, vehicles, the mudguards and stuff over that time. And and I think one thing with my father, he was very solid, very straightforward, and, and the respect that, that customers had, you know, in those days, I remember he was so disappointed the one time after picking me up, surfing the one time, that he had to physically write on a cigarette box a price that he had negotiated with a customer that would be the price carrying forward. That it wasn't just on a handshake. You know, that that was <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, where now everything has to be on letterheads on yes. signed Perfect. off yeah. originals and stuff. And that just showed and, and when I got into textiles and and what a number of the senior companies and, and senior people in some of these companies had for my father and took me under their wing. And really they just opened the door for me and teaching me about textiles and so on. Um the credit to to myself and what I learned in Europe in applications. How do you apply chemicals onto textiles or onto carpets in those days? By increasing volume, by putting air into latex and and a few tricks and so on. I was able to impart that into textiles and so on, which really gave value. Cost per square meter is uh, what I then saw the opportunity for White on Chemicals to do. That we became, and, and what White on Chemicals is about, Uh, My my core business is that we provide a service to the market. And through application, we will prove a cost per square meter value. Um, So really in simple terms, in the old days, think about your granny's curtains. They were really woven tight. They were thick, heavy carpet uh, um, curtains. What we do is we replace the yarn with latex. So the, the curtain must still feel the same. But the, the latex is the cheaper part and the, the yarn is the expensive part. Mm. And, and, and same like in carpets, for instance, you don't go and buy a, 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 a carpet by weight. Buy it by yarn mass, not by total mass. Because obviously in, in, in my side of things… we like That's like, in,
0: in your Buddha voice, voice, right? Yeah, yeah, a, exactly. A, a water yeah. in your of water. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah,
1: and 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 so that's really what we did. And into the automotive industry, we went into and we a key supplier into the automotive market. We're a second tier supplier that supplies so every South African car that's manufactured, every carpet that's produced in the cars that are made in South Africa is our chemical on the back, and that comes through you know the the first tier suppliers who then mould the carpets and and then put it into Toyota and b m w mercedes et cetera et cetera. It's a key key market area that we are in, and the biggest there and what we have with it what what fills our value is that we are service to that market. The automotive market is not an easy market to be in, but all the all the suppliers really need to be in a strategic alliance together. To really make the South African market, the automotive market, competitive
0: worldwide. Just standing still there. I mean, this sounds the automotive market sounds like the experience you had with your first job, looking have to looking back at the different departments so that the end product was was solid, yeah. right? So yes, it's just different businesses doing pretty much the same thing as making sure we're all basically part of this supply chain slash assembly line, so to speak. But if you yeah. mess up. You pass the mess on to me. I'm I'm going to look like a poople. So so is that is that a fair, very valid?
1: Uh, yeah, hundred percent. So we we as a supplier are are focusing on the latex or chemical aspect of of the carpet. But it's not just making the chemical and then giving it and selling it to them and it, what they do with it is their problem. It's really taking it right to the step and sitting at a boardroom table with guys and saying right the specification that's that's required for a specific model of car needs to meet flame retardancy moldability etc cetera, etc cetera, and needs to come in at a price point x and we then worked our way back to saying well let's do if we did the fiber or the yarn weight at this what chemical weight that we can do so it never was really about the cost per kilogram of chemical i'm supplying them it was more at the end of the day, what is the cost per square meter for that unit item that we can then sell on to the car or Toyota or Ford yes. or whatever. Or and that's where the strategic alliance between the key one, two, three suppliers are. I have to focus on the key raw materials where Quentin, for instance, comes in at SLC for starring butadiene and so on. So I hold him to account in really looking at his monomer cost. How do we strategically align ourselves in really working together to to meeting the end goal for for South Africa at the end of the day and making a South African car competitive worldwide that we all benefit and employ people and the social responsibilities and, and values that we can create out of doing this business successfully? On that, that was really a great sort of tick in the box that really got White on turning and and um, turn, turning the the corner when I first joined and seeing how efficient it can work as a partnerships, yeah. And I think a big thing was, and, and I, I sort of get back to Stefan and listening to the podcast that Stefan had and did your interview and so on was, it's South Africa don't trust each other. We almost sort of want to deal with people from overseas more than we want to deal with ourselves. Now, I, I, don't, know, I don't know where that comes from and I don't know how we're ever going to fix that thing. Hmm. But, you know, the relationship that that we've had with SLC and even before the whole Carbacam group and when and and so on were all together, part of the DAO, it gets back to the individuals. And I must say Dr. Abram Brink and um, Pete Stenhoff, they were, and Duncan Brown, for instance, were also role models to me in the way how South Africa and the ability that we have and the potential we have for a group of people like that that were able to work together and really create the opportunities and allow, obviously, Quentin's growth, saw the value in Quentin and was able to support him to take SLC, the SBR component, out of the Carbacam, and support him into an opportunity for for self And I think we don't, you know, if it's anybody listening here, I don't think we do enough Justice for ourselves as business leaders and stuff to really promote and have the trust in our own South African people and giving them that opportunity to really grow, but not just grow not just give them the opportunity to have a company but actually take take that opportunity to support and mentor them through the first three years. I think I don't know the statistics now, but I would say it's more than seventy percent in the first three years. A African company fails. Now, that's a number of opportunities where people who haven't been privileged maybe in the past suddenly have a, an opportunity and suddenly realise that there's money on the table and they go and blow it as opposed to reinvesting it and building a company long term. Versus, it, it's that mentoring stage, and I, we don't we don't do enough of that. And that's something which is playing on my mind a lot now and really how my succession plan works in building up the team to really start taking over. And partly moving down to Cape Town was one of those decisions was to get myself out of the coalface as such because it's very easy for someone to knock on the door, Brian, can you fix this? And it took me out, but it also gave partly from a strategic point of view in my flooring business, as we decided to diversify and invest what we were finding in some, and I talk about trust in the and market, one or two customers. You give them the opportunity. We saw with our overseas guys, Tab and Becky's there in 2008, in ORO Germiston, the tyre market. The, all the smog. The, what the guys were doing were burning the tyres. They were getting the sprung steel out of the tyres and reselling it for you know to get some money. But that was creating smog. So we saw an opportunity to crumb the rubber tyres and create an underlay, a value-added product, which has just created a whole new business and a very successful business that's really growing now in, in my flooring company, Watson Flooring, which has gone. Rubber is a very good, has a very good memory, and it actually adds value to the carpet as an underlay, as well as it's got very good thermal and sound deadening properties in it. So it can absorb sound. So we created a product, which was being produced over in the UK with our mother company in the UK at the time with our partners that were were over there. And we brought it out into South Africa. We trained up a customer of ours, how to produce it. But you know, what happens is after six months or a year, the guys, when it's all running well, they think that they've done it all and they can do it and they don't need you scenario. And, and short, short, relationship...
0: short-term memory loss, as I always say.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, and what happens is then they suddenly want to import, and because it's a bit cheaper here and stuff, and it breaks that that relationship down. And, and so we we took a bit of a thing, and and as much as I was diversifying into the construction business, the textile business, the paper business, carpets has always been in my blood. It's just the people in the carpets are a fantastic bunch of guys. They are. Down to earth, hard-working, and even now. So, I'm really privileged to be really back in the seats in, in the carpet market again in retail with our flooring business. So, making the guys clever and making underlays and in the carpets and suddenly getting your 100% sales and business into them and a strategic alliance and suddenly getting only 50% of that and halving the market. I, I really took a decision there and getting back to the self belief and the self confidence and saying, well, I actually, we can do it ourselves and we can actually do it better. And and I started, that's how we created this opportunity and trained up my own people and created a company out of it. And and this has allowed that like empowerment. It's allowed the business to, to come up and see an opportunity. And, and as I say, we've now got warehouses in the three main uh, uh, Natal, Joburg, Cape Town, um, which is employing people. It's growing. But the biggest thing is, is adding value to the market. We're keeping most of the Chinese out of the out of the uh, imports here now because we're having a locally manufactured product, which is employing people and giving value. We've now mm-hmm. expanded that whole range within it to all the aluminium, all the heat bond, all the auxiliary products that come to the carpet market, to lay a carpet, to fit a carpet. So we, we're supporting the carpet market. I supply the chemical for the carpets and we supply all the auxiliaries For the carpet, for the fitment of the carpet. So it's quite a, also for me, it's the pull through marketing that I like to always get it know the end market and know who the main players are in market so that when I'm supplying the first tier or the middleman, I know what the end market are looking for. And and I think I picked that up quite a bit. And, you know, Volatex killed a lot of the smaller companies if you want to call it the negative or the realistic point, biotechs are so big, they can't make all these bits and pieces sort of areas for the market. So that definitely created an opportunity for me in being able to supply end markets and being in the end market and seeing what the people are looking for to be able to then develop market areas and get products into the market at, you know, for smaller quantities and, and that will still meet a, a need for the end market. And let, you know, the Bulgatexers and the big manufacturers just do the volume business.
0: Uh, yes, it, and, and I mean, it sounds like, again, it, it, it sounds very similar to what the lessons you've learned in Motif is the fact, again, you you know what they need and you reverse from there. Uh, correct. Um, yeah, you, so it's, it's staying close to the end user. Uh, yeah. Even though you're number three, even though you number three in line, just you, you need to focus on number one. Yes, absolutely. That's
1: yeah. At the end of the day, your customer is the needs the product, and you need to to develop a product for the customer. You know, so often people are saying, "Well, this is what I have. Please, could buy it." No, you, you've <laughs> got to you yeah. got to find what the market's needing, and and so.
0: Um, That's and so, so just Brian, sorry to interrupt I just want to go two steps back. So I just want to touch on the, the – you say we don't trust one another or, you know, like Stefan. And, I mean, there is a – I mean, the Afrikaners are a classic example. We always say, that, you know, why can't we work together? You know, it's, it's, it's old news. But thankfully, there are these pockets, you know, it's not, everybody is not aware of it. Is it again as we lack a, that, that road map? You know, it's going back to you as a young tennis player – lack of a roadmap do you think it's maybe as an industry there's a lack of a roadmap because historically the government or the municipality or someone would sit and and pull the industry together and say what are we trying to to achieve here guys at a larger scale what are we aiming for versus now everybody operating in their little silos or in your case I think because you're part of a bigger family it makes it you know at least you you stay in contact you have a feel for what's going on Um, so that's my first question Do you think we lack a roadmap in general for industry, and number two is the mentoring that you mentioned. Do you think that you know going to your supplier even or someone as a mentor that you now basically have to acknowledge that you're not as clever as your, your customer thought you were, or is it is it always like seeing it as weakness? I have to act like I know everything, uh, otherwise you're going to find another supplier. So I guess it's, uh, you know how thin is that line where you say it's okay. Mr. Supplier, Quinton, it's okay. Uh, We know you can do it. So we're going to trust you. If you don't know all the answers, we're going to help you get those answers. We're going to help you develop versus, mate, I need someone that can get the job done. I don't have time to to teach you how to suck eggs. So roadmap and egg sucking. So what are your thoughts on that?
1: So there are a lot of consultants in the country and people hate the consultants (laughs) in this country because it's, and and I go back in, in the field, textiles and carpets and so on. It's a small market in South Africa. One idea, you know, a consultant comes to you, sees what you're doing, and then they like to look smart and sell their, that information off to, to somebody else. So immediately that created mistrust from that aspect. The market being so small, give you an example for the carpet market in the early days there was when, when Belgix came in. Romatex was the main players at that stage. And they had a number of different carpet mills around the country and so on, and all their directors in each mill and and, and so on. And there it was a case of that they felt no one would ever take them out. It was the Romatex group. So they had their own latex suppliers. They had everything sort of in-house, and it was all that. So if you weren't part of that niche, you were nobody, sort of scenario you know, when Baltics came in and started taking them out, I think that really just blew everyone apart. They didn't know who's working for who and how, and I think that created a bit of the, the mistrust. Okay. But I think also it came from the whole apartheid era as well, is that, you know, you're, you know, I sort of see it here in Stellenbosch in the sense that you've got your, you've got the key guys who've been at university together, they oh, came yeah, through, yeah. And it, it's just, you know, to break into something like that is almost impossible. Um So, you know, I think it was right from that the schools, the the you know which school you went to, how you went to, you went to trust, and, and I mean I used to chuckle a bit because you know when I first started with Whitechon, one of the first questions when I'd go into some of these companies is so where do you go to school? If you weren't at a Michael House, Hilton you you weren't going to be at the at the top league. You weren't going to be dealing with the accountants and the, you know those type of things. And so but it was very tricky in in that sort of scenario. Whereas I sort of came in and hey, this is who I am. And um, this is what I think I can offer. I don't know everything, but if I work with you, I'm sure the, the two of us, two brains together, we can actually achieve something more than one person. So that was more the the, the mindset I was working with. And, like I say, with Carbacam and, and um, with Quentin and the, the few of the guys pre, prior to him, you know, they went, they got into the paint business very much in the sense, and I'd like to say from, from our side as well, we were with, with Abram, and that says there's a big market in Mozambique. And we touched it and said, well, how can we get your polymers? They needed somebody to mix it up into a paint, and we in Natal, and how could we get it through there? And that's what created. This scenario. So we we started as being distributors for, for Carbacem and SLC in the coastal region. Eventually there it got to a point as there was no real margin in that. And I but but it opened the door to me to see the paint and construction business mm. and say, but hold on a minute. All these guys are doing is pretty much what I'm doing. They're adding salt and pepper to your main base raw material and then providing a service into the market. Well, we can do that, and we all just and that's what, how we got into the retail game by branding and, and creating Samson Paints, our own product, and believing that our own paint and our own product will survive, will create it. But we came with a different slant. Instead of just being a paint manufacturer, for me, it was more about being a solutions provider. So I don't like people looking at me and saying, I, I make paint. Yes, we make paint, but we rather come and provide a solution so in the Western Cape where you've got rain at a horizontal level going straight onto your walls, how can we provide a solution for, for that area? And they've got cavity walls and, and so on and waterproofing versus in Natal where, you know, it's, it's more about cost. It's about single walls, brick facing, thunderstorms, uh, unlevel ground, all those type of things. So how do we provide a solution for that? Now, a Plascon can't do that. that Their the whole business model wouldn't work through, through a volume capacity. So. But we see that opportunity, and we've grown quite successfully in giving a relationship with key people in key areas and not trying to supply every single shop. Mm. And we know when I get a phone call from, from one of them, there's a, there's a genuine problem or there's a genuine need to resolve something as opposed to just prostituting your paint everywhere where you, where someone will buy it if you just want to go out there then you're not trusting anybody it's just yourself you're the man on your own island and you just want to go and slaughter everybody and, and so on. now if you've got the finances to do that and you, you you can get a business model then then go for it but but I think it's you've got a lot of these smaller guys who've you we are trying to compete with the big guys. And as you say, I don't think have a, a clear picture of exactly where they want. They, they're looking to earn an income. And there's so many. And, and White On, even the, the origins of White On, it was more about what I can have today and earn as an income selling time, as opposed to building a company. And the success today and our success going through COVID and that was through the foundation that was being built. We've, Financially, technically, we built a sound business that was able to withstand the pressures that we had through COVID. We've, I think it was only the month of June where there was total shutdown. The July month, I think it was, where we dropped people at a 10%. Other than that, everybody got paid full right throughout COVID. We didn't retrench anybody at that stage. And we were committed to the industry, even though, as you know, it was, wasn't, wasn't easy. Um so, you know, that's the foundation stage of the hard work that we were able to carry through, but also have built the trust in the relationships that we've never played one supplier against another. And that is, that's what breaks trust. And then I think in South Africa, because everybody's trying to make that extra buck, they... Playing and because more and more is being imported in into this country, and I think if I go into the early 90s, we were buying about 70% local. Now we are buying not, I would say probably not even 30% local now, 20 sure. to 30% local raw materials, purely because it's it's just either not being manufactured here anymore. If it's being manufactured, it's how the service level is, the competitive level is, and so on. Um, which is, which is really a, a very sad situation in my opinion. And it doesn't mean we don't have the skills to do it. We can do it. It's just, I think the big vision right from the leadership at, at government level, right throughout is if there's some rules in the game that are put there to buy business and government and everybody together, there's huge potential to, to get back on, 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 on the planet.
0: When too many imports enter a country in relation to exports, it can distort a nation's balance of trade and devalue its currency. The devaluation of a country's currency can have a huge impact on the country as the value of a currency is one of the chief determining factors of a nation's economic performance and its GDP. Maintaining the appropriate balance of imports and exports is therefore crucial. According to Brian, South Africa's local buying has dropped down from 70% to an estimate 30%, with almost all raw materials being imported these days. I put it to Brian that this probably highlights opportunities for starting new enterprises in the local economy. And this is what he had to say.
1: So I would, I would definitely be saying in the, in, from, from our paper business in that market, there's some really good opportunities that could be produced there. I mean, your big corporates there are the technology that, that we've helped with is converting sugarcane and uh, bagasse into into pulp as opposed to just cutting trees down and making pulp, That's te- technical. But, but, you know, the Sapi and the Mondis are such huge corporates. There's opportunities. We have a small plant we've built we because they cannot being so big make thermal paper for instance now thermal paper is you know if you get a a, a parking fine or a traffic fine it's, it's the paper there that
0: I thought that, it, that, I that's, thought that's another form of toilet paper <laughs>
1: yeah yeah <laughs> um, but your ATM paper so what that is it's it's not an ink print it's the ink is already in the paper um, and then what happens is when the ATM it's it's a heat the heat-activated ink that comes up onto the paper. So we have the chemistry, we've got the ability, but you know, we've in our small scenario, we have slowly grown and built a machine that can produce very limited amount, but it can can do it. Now, you know, it's getting that team between if it's governments to to investors to technical and form a group together. That is massive business. Everything is being imported. Now, you would need, you know, I would say a good 15, 20 million to set something up. And there's a business. There's an opportunity. But it's trying to find and get the people together that I tend to find what happens is you've got your your financiers or your investors who've got the money and they basically saying, well, they want the the major share. Mm. And then you've got a guy who has ability but doesn't have anything else and that ability isn't being recognized as much as, as the money. Mm. And But actually the ability is what's going to make the future money.
0: Yes.
1: There just seems to be, in my experience, such a, a rift or a canyon between greed, I suppose. The investors just want to really, really exploit the equity out of the business as opposed to the, the long-term value of, of the thing and we've, we've seen it in a couple of the textile malls very recently where there's huge potential in su- southern africa for for bedding for and i know governments are looking into it how that bravo and and some of the big betting guys can can really grow into into africa with obviously now with the banking systems and the and the roots going through the textile market. The people here are amazing. The the coloured people in Cape Town, the Western Cape, some of these areas were built on textiles, and it's so sad to see these buildings that still exist there that are, are cemeteries basically, mm-hmm. you know? and and even in the town, your your old companies like Whiteheads and stuff, there's still the generation which is a couple of years older than me and in my age who still have that art and the technology to produce it successfully. Not the youngsters who want to google it and think they know how to produce a, a woven yarn that can meet a certain parachute level or something like it. It, it. it also becomes an art and it's it's about art. And if we lose that in the next 10 to 15 years, it's it's almost gone forever, to be honest. Um, and, and that's what I'm finding in a lot of the big mills as well. You know, yes, BE is important. I agree that we need to get the balance, get the the, the haves and the have-nots to the equal footing, and I'm not, not opposed to that, and I'm, I'm very involved in building my own business in, in that. And, in fact, proud to say that, you know, a white solely white owned company on a BE two level mm-hmm. here, purely by the diversifying and, and setting up the other companies and giving black empowerment and, and ownership into those companies. But but not just raising the flag and saying that, but actually really putting pressure on them to and and support to train them and get them to a position that they know what it's like to run a business and yes. and manage a business as opposed to just giving them a business in the in sense and i really believe that that that's the future if the people who've got the money can create the opportunity for the the guys who haven't but they've got other strengths and other values and somehow if a third party is needed there to hold the two together to ensure that there's a, a continued trust because it it always it's like a marriage it, it always is great in the beginning, mm-hmm. but you don't want the divorce in the end because suddenly there's a bit of risk. How do you how do you get through the difficult times? And and that if your trust and if someone feels that they're getting more than the other, then that's where it all breaks down. And that's where I think this country, the trust element is 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 just continually gets broken down and continually gets fueled in in this Situation, and so I don't, I don't have a a true answer, but I definitely feel that that's that's one of the root causes, in the sense why long-term business can't be successful um, because we're not giving, we're not recognizing each other's abilities when we form a partnership in in it. And 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 and
0: and the common denominator, I guess, uh, the negative common denominator is greed, right? So whether you're greedy as an investor, greedy. As uh, I want to import, I don't. I just want to milk it. It's almost like selling masks during COVID. It's like you know, a lot of new, that's not a. You're not going to build yeah. a legacy on masks, but I mean, you'll milk the hell out of it. If you make ten million bucks. You know, great. I'll, I'll move on to the next. Uh, um, reminds me, it's just a big scale oak like with a with a jacket, throwing it open with you know, what what product do you want? Just just a larger scale version of it. I so-
1: also think, also just to add and finalize on that one, is the leadership in rut, and I've, and we can talk politics, but I'm I'm talking business here. Leaders and owners in companies are not necessarily acting as leaders, and 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 thing In and I'm generalizing, in the sense is that, and if I looked at it, it was very very clear when I first was into business through the the changeover in '94 and, and so on. You had the old guys white management who were sort of 60 coming up towards retirement age were very, and I had two of my own chemists um, that I had employed and, and, and so on. And in fact, I tried to help a guy who had been retrenched out of uh, quite a big corporate company to to help him. He had value, but he was so focused on holding all his cards so close to his chest to protect himself and this is where I go from like uh, John Maxwell, for instance, on, on his, tw- um, his rules of leadership and so on. And the one I always go is, is, is the law of the lid. And that is basically where you get people, you know, I might be teaching people under me. And if I'm not improving my own skill and growing in my own level, I'm never going, I'm, there's going to come a stage where the people I'm teaching below me are going to catch me up. Mm-hmm. and know as much as I know. So that's where I hold myself account to keep pushing myself and driving myself to create that. But for owner or a leader of a company is to identify that middle management or senior management, who are, are, are they motivating and encouraging and teaching and mentoring the, the youth up to them? And when it gets to a point where where they are, are they themselves learning and growing themselves? Or are they getting to a point now where they're feeling under pressure from the juniors catching them up? Now, that's where I, I really have looked at it and how do you manage that situation? You know, Because either what's going to happen, the junior who's taken time, who's got the right attitude, has learned, is suddenly going to be hitting their heads and saying, well, I can't go anywhere further, so I'm just going to leave. Mm. And then you've left a real good person you might go and get caught up in in a in a big corporate company as a a pawn in 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 a laboratory, as opposed to really the full value that they could have really grown out and and added so much more value into 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 my business or anybody else's business in in a small medium sized company. I'm talking yes, about. Yes, yes, and, and it's and it's often that 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 senior management who's you know you sort of almost. Hosting will become complacent, or has got a structure in place that that you know they've got everything under control, and everybody must report to them, and they're limiting the business. and And I find I find that very often in in a number of mills and a number of companies that I go to is the weak spot that I identify. Obviously, as a supplier. I want to make sure that I'm adding value, but I'm also getting paid for my services and getting paid. So I don't want a company that's gonna shut their doors just now. Yes, yes. So often often going into companies and looking at weak spots and weak areas and seeing, you know, what what and quite often I'm identifying that is um this sort of middle to senior management who one can be Talking all whining and negative how bad the country is and that and their whole conversation is all about that as opposed to actually well, what are we going to do about it yeah, yeah and and where they're limiting the growth of the business in in they've got they've looked after themselves and they 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 sort mm-hmm. of got their own little comfort zone um, and that to me I I actually see is quite a weakness in 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 some of the businesses um, sure. that we deal with
0: so is that is, is is the answer to that I mean it's not a, a simple Answer, I guess, the fact that if you can see the junior catching up. So, one of two things, how do you, what do you do to make that middle management, senior management increase the can size so that that ceiling becomes higher? Or is it just a matter of either that or they get worked out? But I mean, you obviously don't want to work them out necessarily. I mean, unless they're a, a terrorist, but how do you make sure that that lid keeps on? Yeah, it's it's
1: it's it's finding their sweet spot, finding what they want to get out of bed with, and and so on, and um and and that's partly also why we've diversified, and I think we diversified quite successfully, is that being able to find those sweet spots, and I'm, I'm especially from our account side, our, our girls there, is that I've been able to take the one senior person into a, a better role where she's becoming more directing the business and allowing the other girls suddenly blossom into taking on you know the the smaller companies and really showing how they're gonna add value into that and and then being accountable. So yes, there's the cash flow is the balance sheet and, and and so on. So yeah, to just stay in one company it eventually gets to the end where, you know, you know how how will that senior person sort of you know excel any further if, if, they, you know, if they feel they're in their sweet spot and comfort, is that being a negative to the business in the, in the sense? And, you know, one I find with the directors and, and, and senior management, general management, not, they often are not driving and exploring how they're going to improve the business. They're more reporting on what the business has done mm. um, as opposed to that's part of their role for sure. But what are they doing to achieve success going forward in the business? Where are some of the weak spots or the blind spots in the business? And, I, and that's where I think, and, and I, from an accounting practice there especially, is a lot of it's reporting for reporting's sake mm. and, and history. And, and I think I'm, I'm coming from where I'm very involved in the business, even when we talk ISO and so on. You know that's a re- reporting structure. ISO for for senior management, uh, for for shareholders and things like that. So as much as I'm a shareholder, I'm I'm actively in, involved in the business. So I know what's happening in the business. So you don't need to give me last month's balance sheet or, or income statement in the sense. I know. I know if we've done.
0: A I know what happened. Not. I want to know what yeah. we do better.
1: I want to know what's the plan with the yeah. Transnet strike, The the you know, the future potential government strikes happening now. What is that implication hap- going to happen coming towards the end of the year when shutdown is? How are we going to achieve that? Where's the cash flow being driven into it? How can our resources be invested better so that, you know, global prices, you know, with Putin wanting to take out the grain shipments, what's going to happen there with, with the, the Rand dollar, um, you know, all that type of thing. But that will carry us through into, into January, February especially into carpets, textiles and stuff, it's shut down over December. So December and January are very poor months, yeah. turnover-wise. Um, so you don't want to be on the back foot getting into sort of middle January, February from a cash flow perspective, as opposed to being on the front foot, seeing the opportunity. Where other people are sitting back, this is the time when you can actually be uh, you know, really being aggressive into 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 driving driving the business forward and getting the turnover and getting getting the sales from that so that's really i think the the ability i think sometimes my my weakness i suppose is a case is uh, sometimes people have said to me i'm i'm like a a a, a guy on a ski boat driving and pulling a, a, a skier and i'm we up, he's up and running, and the next minute I'm still driving, I look back and he's fallen off and I'm like, what the hell is he falling off for? I've you know, he knows how to ski sort of thing. Yeah. And then it's turning around having to pick him up and get going again. So sometimes people are saying I'm I'm driving too fast in my, my energy and urgency, as opposed to sort of there are certain times maybe to pull back a bit and, and keep the guys going. So that's that's my journey at the moment is uh, <laughs> You know, as I've got the vision for the business and driving the business forward, there's certain times where um, I need to to look at the management team, and they're not at you know maybe not at the level where where I am from an ownership point of view. But but yeah. that
0: that will come. That's a challenge, and I and I and I want to want to come back to your example, how with with Stefan in the beginning of your uh, career and journey. Was that maybe the answer if you don't have as you rightly pointed out, so all you know a lot of small or medium sized businesses don't have other businesses they can they expose their people to to lift that lid, but at the same time that you can jump on a plane and go and visit the counterpart in in, in any country and, and and whether it's Germany or england or or south america that's not going to be the same in, in, in those three countries, so just being exposed to other countries, other companies even though it's the same thing you're going to learn right so I think it's It's just sometimes a plane ticket. It's not even, uh, uh, you know, okay, we don't have a second, third or fourth division that we can, you know, expose our people to. Yeah,
1: absolutely. you 100%. Traveling is is the most amazing thing for me. It was uh, such an education for me, traveling on the ships and traveling with with Baltics and traveling personally and, and so on. I mean, I've said my kids, when they were, 13, 14, over, I took them over to the, to the States and, and so on. Just for them to understand first world, as opposed to, you know, we think we're in a first world. I think a lot of people fool themselves. We're not in a first world at this point in time. Um, so that was the first thing. And then what one of our schools here do, they, over the holiday season, they, the two fantastic teachers here, take a group of around 13 or 14 kids over into to the states, and they go to like uh, the one was Boston. They go go to the university there, and they got to spend a day with I think. So as much of my kids thought it was a holiday. Um, <laughs> it went and it was great, is because these two teachers are fantastic mentors. But they also said it's a totally different experience, it's because it's not dad and mom where they can whine and they've got planned things. And and they suddenly had to go, and they only were allowed to be given so much money, and they had to work out. How they were going to work together to to buy food, you know, and, and yeah. Lovely. So my, my son is very entrepreneurial, but like me, he made a plan with a few of the girls there. They <laughs> he got the big hamburger and they got the smaller ones, but he was quite rather tough. Like. <laughs> you make a plan. And and you know, coming back, and I think that's what stood him now. He's at Basti at the moment up in, in tux I can clearly see it's seeing the opportunity within the opportunity. And um um, and but first, you got to see that opportunity, and and I think by travelling the world, yeah, you're in a foreign place. You you know, mom and dad's not there, or someone's not there just to put a nappy around you. You have now got to uh, you know make it work and, and yeah, happen. Yeah. And um, yeah, I think I definitely feel also that the the youth today are too mollycoddled. The the kids need to start you know standing up and um, and taking a lead and, and actually taking a stand. Um, it's really, you know, it's all nice. We all want to cuddle and we don't want to, you know, make enemies and all that type of thing. But at the end of the day, we've also got to realize what's right is right. And and I just tend to find the generations coming through, it's just always gray. There's very few people actually standing up and They're saying...
0: lukewarm, right? right?
1: Yeah, very, very, very much uh, on, on that point. So yeah that's that's the big and I think that just really comes from communication um so so you know trying to put that back into the business, what is right? what do we stand for we We're a Christian faithful company that it's right we do business ethically, yes, we try you know we have guys coming here and wanting us to to supply them cash so that there's no vat and all this stuff and we said you know we don't operate like that and you know, it you can do it once, you mark forever, and it just it your whole standards, your ethics, and if this if this country, if we can just do our little bits right individually here, it automatically will build a country that we all start doing things right, yeah. um and, 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 and ethically. Um, and it gets back to communication in the end. And but it's it's having the end goal, the end vision. And I think, you know. My vision clearly one day when I, I, I can sit and play golf uh, every second day of the, of the week potentially was building a company we have got on our construction business, we've got chemistry that goes into the floors. We've got underlays, products that, that go above the floor, that add value to a carpet or a hard flooring surface. We then have skirting. We developed a product that's flexible skirting out of a chemistry, your old beach slops. We developed it into making it firmer. So that can go around bends and corners. It can be paintable and so on. So it's adding more value than just chopping a tree down and making a skirting. Um, We have paint. We have good waterproofing products for up the walls. We have a, a product, a thermal insulation type product. We've got roof paints. So really my vision at the end of the day, I can sit with an architect, in a in a in a big estates big complexes and it's a one shop stop that we have technically sound products and a solution for for them that's my personal vision when I feel that i've I've reached a a goal of building from something very small into uh, you know, a diversified company that's employed people with individuals from low backgrounds, disadvantaged backgrounds, right through to privilege, to different skills that that I can then overlook and see and and see how they've all found their sweet spots within within the organization, which is then the success to 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 the whole group or, or the business. Okay. So that's sort of the the end, yeah.
0: That's a. I mean, I, I, I just. I mean, the time has flown by, and I, I'm really having so much fun, learning so, so much, and then I'm going to say thank you for your time. I don't want to keep you longer because I mean, we we almost no. two hours, right? <laughs> no, no, <that's,
1: laughs>
0: believe no, it, also. believe it or not, you know, it's, it's, it's it always. I say time flies when you're having fun, um, yeah. but it, it's it's very inspiring, very insightful, and I mean, it's it's really some some tremendous lessons here, and 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 I and I want to emphasize that even what we're busy with here, we, 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 we've launched, uh, we've actually dubbed it uh, SON, like sun, is on Sarkorn Steenings Network, you know? So I, I, I see the opportunity for a private business chamber that right. for, for everything you've just said is, because I feel too much lobbying, too little support, too little synergy, too little comparing notes uh, with no agenda, same roadmap, what do we want to do, we want to create jobs, We want to, we want to, we want to, we want economic growth. And I always say economic growth comes, we want to export. And in our case, we digital. So how do we export more of our digital products and services, which I feel we are world-class nine out of 10 times, Um, or shall I say it's less complicated to export than if you're in manufacturing and, and ultimately why? So we can be better, we can be world-class and, and, and we can create jobs for the country. And, um, I'm very sensitive or, or conscious of the fact that I always say because we came back, uh, you know, we, we're not suddenly judging anybody that wants to leave. Uh, or, yeah. you know, I would say if you can semigrate first before you sh- shoot straight to Perth, you know, as an yeah. example, you know, but I, I appreciate not everybody can move to, to the Western Cape, for example, but, um, at the end of the day, I, I know a lot of entrepreneurs, if you can give them in to help them get the international uh, opportunities and exposure, they they don't want to leave. They just want that, you know, no. uh, um, diversification. They want to reduce risk. Um, but their first choice would be to stay here, you know, and, and I want to see what we do busy with now, see how we can facilitate that at the end of the day, but very much in line with everything you've said. And that that's actually very encouraging to me that, that is a lacking opportunity that we need to do something about.
1: Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. No, that's great, Jerox. it's great to, to meet with you. So I'll leave it to you on the editing side, as you say. You yeah, no, we'll, we'll talk it. Now. But uh,
0: please, if you, if you, do uh, uh, you, Pretoria, often visiting your light here? How often are you up here? Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, we,
0: I'm, I'm about a week a month up in Durban as well. I and just that, actually flew back last week, but yeah. But well, please pop in. in. We we are in the uh, the R21 corporate park. You know, and on, on the R21 Irene uh, village. Yes, yes, yes. We're just across the road. It's a big business park.
1: Okay. Perfect. We, we, yeah. yeah, and
0: I've got have got a cafe. Can we have some proper coffee. We'll we kick uh, Stellenbosch and Cape Town All back right. for coffee. <laughs> uh, perfect. All right, thanks so I'll, much I'll, for your I'll time. I really appreciate it. After.
1: I'll bring a bottle of red wine up as well then. Yes, please. (laughs) You won't kick kick a butt with that, though.
0: No, 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 no. I I, I don't know about these uh, Gauteng vineyards. I don't think that. (laughs) It's called Liquor City. (laughs) No, No, yes. Good, man. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. It was a really insightful uh, interview. Thank you very much.
1: Awesome.
0: Thanks, Jacques. Pleasure. The best. Bye-bye.